0: Now, Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i Faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i Faith. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Deloria Bighorn. Deloria's heritage hails from two native tribes, Yankton Sioux on her father's side and Chickasaw on her mother's. Before starting a family, Deloria worked for United Indians for All Tribes Foundation. She is now the Interim Director of the Office of Aboriginal Affairs for the Baha'i Community in Canada. I started the interview by asking Deloria where she grew up, and what was it like growing up there.
1: I grew up in the Northwest portion of the United States. My parents had met in residential school in Lawrence, Kansas, at a big school called Haskell Indian School. My father is a Yankton Sioux from South Dakota and my mother is a Chickasaw from Oklahoma. They met at this school where there was a thousand other Indian kids. My father had been orphaned by the time he was 13 and my mother had lost her father when she was 12, which really impoverished their family. Neither one of them really had a desire to return to their homeland. In some ways, because I think of those losses, and uh, my father's uh, roommate at Haskell was a guy from the um- Umatilla Reservation, and he told my dad, "Well, you know, when we graduate, you can come home with me, and we'll just, you know, we'll find work." And so my dad said, "Okay," and he came out to the Umatilla Reservation and found that his roommate's family was about as poor as could be, but they welcomed him with open arms. And later, or soon after that, they traveled over to the Warm Springs Reservation where there was these CCC camps. So my dad and his roommate started working there, and the crew boss took a liking to my dad, and he thought my dad had the capacity to you know, go to college, I guess, he had been giving him, they were logging, I guess, or working in the forest somehow. But my dad showed, uh, I guess, a lot of capacity to learn quickly. And so he said, I Phil, I think you can go to school and I'll take you to Oregon State University, which is where I went to school. And so he took my dad over there and they were interested. My dad applied for a scholarship from the BIA, Bureau of Indian Affairs. And so for all four years of college, he got a four $400. He started in school. Well, obviously, he couldn't make it on that, so he was a boxer. He had learned boxing when he was at Haskell. So he boxed around Oregon under the pseudonym of Flash Gordon and... Some other kinds of names like that, and he was a lightweight, so he fought the kind of the bout before the main the main bout and made money that way and Then he was at the gym at o- Oregon State, and he walked onto to the boxing team there he was runner up for the i guess it was called the West Coast Championships for all the universities or colleges at that time, they were called. He was 21 by the time he started going to school, and I guess this fellow, Charlie Chester was his name, who kind of took my dad under his wing. He really hoped that he would be in his fraternity. So he took my dad over to this fraternity, and and the guys met him, and they liked him so much, and but at the end of the evening, another guy came over and he took my dad aside and he said, well, you know, Phil, you know, all, all of us guys really like you, but, you know, it's the national charter that says we can't invite any American Indians in our fraternity. So we really apologize, but we can't offer you an invitation. Well, so my dad didn't care, but, you know, those are some of the things that he had to deal with. At the time, in the Northwest, there were three uh, Native people in school in higher education, and they all knew each other. There was a lady at Central Washington, and there was someone at Western Washington, which which was a teacher's college, and then my dad was at Oregon State. So as a result, now I'm going to get to the point, as a result, my brother and I were raised in the Pacific Northwest, because when my my dad really liked it out here, and then he did graduate from Oregon State, he became an engineer, and he went down to the Panama Canal, where a lot of, you know, a lot of engineers were needed. The war came along, he signed up for the war, and was ended up to be posted to the canal zone. Afterwards, took my mom down there when they married, and then all the engineers were coming up to work on the Columbia River. My parents ended up around Walla Walla, around Hermiston, Walla Walla, that area, where lots of the engineers were working on these dams along the Columbia River. So that's how I ended up to be raised not in my homeland. I'm a member of the Yankton Sioux Tribe uh, or Oklahoma. I still, My mother's family is still there but I was raised in the Northwest.
0: So I have a couple of questions. One is you referred to the school that your mother and father went to as a residential school. Does that have some significant meaning?
1: Well, right now I'm living in Canada. In the late 90s, the survivors of the residential school system in Canada took the Canadian government to task The Canadian government has since acknowledged that a great injustice was perpetrated by these residential schools where children were taken from their homes, and the uh, attitude of the government was to be able to take the Indian out of the child, so to speak. And that certainly was the attitude of the big Indian schools in the U.S. as well. The hope was that by sending these children away to school, some as young as five years old, that they would be able to create a child who would then be a mainstream citizen and forget all about their culture and their prior way of life. And the best way, of course, they could understand the best way to do that was to remove the child from the home And everything familiar. I mean, in Canada, the settlement that was given to the survivors, what they call the survivors, people who actually lived and made it through, there's been a significant uh, monetary compensation. And now they're going back through a system in which they are trying to compensate people who not only did they survive, but they have proof of horrific abuse. And I think that in the United States there have been some movement afoot to try to pursue the same kind of thing, because many Native kids were removed from their homes and were brought away to school, and uh, lots of these kids, if they came home at all, came home maybe in the summertime for a month or less, but otherwise... They were left at school for years and years and years. Many children died at school. My husband and I were working at Shmali Indian School, which is another old, long-standing residential school in the U.S. And there was a whole cemetery of little headstones for children who had died there.
0: What would they have died from?
1: Well, it could have been any number of things, illness mistreatment
0: what was growing up like for you were you raised with the traditional native way of life
1: well as much as one can be when when you're not quote at home my parents bought land and we lived in the country i mean people would say my dad had horse medicine which meant that he had a very good way with horses he loved horses His father was also a man whose life was dedicated to horses. So we lived in the country. My father was a native speaker. I think my father's father actually was an Englishman. So my father was quite light-skinned. And I think to him, his culture meant doubly more, maybe because of that. Uh, Maybe people... If my husband was here, we could discuss this, but he, my husband was very dark-skinned. And maybe there was times in which that wasn't always an ever-present thing for him. But my father, being light-skinned, you know, really treasured the things that he knew and his culture and his, the things he, he experienced growing up on his reservation, speaking his language, the old folks he knew, the way of life he knew. You could say my mother, on the other hand, my mother's grandfather was born on the Trail of Tears, which is was the enforced march of many of those Oklahoma tribes from their homeland to Oklahoma, where they were trying to be moved so that they could get their land, basically, where they were from. As a result of that, my great-grandfather's family died along that Trail of Tears, except for one aunt. So again, when you are removed from your homeland and your relatives, it's hard to hold on to your culture. Now, my great-grandfather was an interpreter, and he worked for the Chickasaw Legislature and so forth, but he died at a rather young age, and my so my grandmother, even though she was half, uh, he had married a, a white woman, so my grandmother was half, she looked very native, and she inherited land. She she loved her culture, but I don't think it was at a time, you know, where it wasn't really fashionable to be, to care that much about your culture, but she really did. But she had lost a great link to her culture with the loss of her father. So that was my mother's side, and uh, I didn't learn, I can, I can say as much about my Chickasaw side, When my grandmother would come, she would talk to us about it and tell us, show us over and over, but on my father's side, because he was there and could speak his language and so forth, I learned lots from him, I should say. And When I was like 11 years old, I took up rodeo, and so I was a barrel racer, and my dad and I would go to rodeos basically all weekend every weekend during the summer sometimes three rodeos a weekend which meant that we were in the truck a lot <laughs> pulling a horse you know down the road going from place to place and my father would tell me the same stories over and over and <laughs> over <laughs> and i think as when i was younger i man i got tired of those stories and you know a lot of them were sad as well i think it created a f- real sense a burning sense of injustice inside me but yet i mean some of them were very sweet my father was a great storyteller and he remembered a lot his memory and his ability to uh remember his language and all these things were very very impressive so i mean i have a at the time though You know, when I was 13 years old or so or 12 or whatever, I think I was was tired of it and there was nowhere to go because we'd be in this pickup truck going, going, driving for hours. And now, of course, I'm very grateful for that because I um, feel like that was a gift, you know, that he passed me. And my husband is a Dakota. He was raised by his grandparents. His mother died when he was two, and his grandparents were native speakers, of course, but they tried very hard not to expose, not to, you know, intentionally teach their language because they didn't see that it would be of benefit to him. But, of course, growing up on his reservation and so forth, he learned a lot of words. So between the two of us, we could have an argument.
0: (laughs) So Deloria, what did you do after high school?
1: Uh, After high school, I um, had a big struggle getting through high school. I ended up dropping out in in the 11th grade, but I was able to make it back, and I had an opportunity to go to Washington State University. I had a lot of struggle there. Finally, I was going to rodeo again in my third year, in the summer, between my second and third year, I decided I was going to rodeo, and I, my dad had found me this great, great horse that had come off the track and looked like it was going to be a good deal, and I was learning to rope. But then the horse was up there at Washington State, and I was riding, and then I had a meeting with my advisor, and I realized that if I really concentrated my junior year and I took summer school, I would be able to graduate early. That was really a very big turning point for me. I wanted to rodeo really bad, but of course when you do that, you know, you have to put your studies second. I wouldn't have been able to finish. And I had had such a struggle in school, I really didn't trust myself to finish. So I made the decision. I just told my dad, you know, I, it's a choice between rodeo and school, I have to finish school. So I did, and I graduated with a degree in sociology slash social work. I had, with a specialty in alcohol and drug treatment, I had spent the last four months of my education working in a treatment center. I saw that that was an important way for me to make a contribution back to my own community.
0: What was the challenge in high school and college?
1: (laughs) Well, I think it has to do with the sorrow of my parents, of my family. I think that, you know, you can move, but you always take yourself with you, you know. And my parents had suffered a lot. And they were not alcoholics or anything like that. They were, they were workaholics, that's for sure. But I think all that sorrow, the loss, the injustice was present in our home. So I think I saw that. I think my parents inadvertently really did not mean to create that situation. But, you know, I started drinking. That was the thing that interfered with my life to the point where it really was a big issue for me. It was during that time that I found the Baha'i faith. So really, I was on a path of self-destruction pretty pretty clearly. And so what happened is, is in my junior year of high school, I got pregnant. I had heard about the Baha'i faith. My brother had become a Baha'i, and I'd heard about the Baha'i faith. And you know, I knew it was true the minute I heard it. I knew that just made sense. Why would God compete with himself? That never made sense to me, that he created all this the Catholic God and the Episcopal God and then all these other religions and so forth, and then he must have forgot that he created some people over in the other part of the earth that didn't get an opportunity to know their Savior and and all that kind of stuff, and that just made no sense to me whatsoever. Actually, there was this story that my father had told me that really created in me that sense of disappointment in Christianity. He didn't mean to at all, because my dad was uh, was a fairly strong Christian. But, you know, when I heard by faith, I, I thought, wow, so God does love all of his creation. He has provided for all of his children. Wow, that makes sense. <laughs> eventually they came to the rules and i was like well no religion's going to tell me i can't have fun i don't go along with that so then of course within 6 months my fun had netted me this really big dilemma you know i was pregnant uh it was in 1969 it wasn't a time wasn't a nice time wasn't a nice wasn't an accepting time. It wasn't a time of opportunity when you're in that situation. So, I ended up going to stay with one of my aunts. My mother came from a big family of eight children. So, I went to stay with an aunt in Georgia. I'm sure my my parents, especially my mother, was really embarrassed, really, really felt bad. And they just didn't know what to do, you know. So, I didn't want to marry the father, and I knew that was, I mean, it, it woke me up, really. I knew that I would, would not be a fit mother. And so I went, was staying with my aunt, and she came along. She was like that angel, you know, that you need when you're lost in the darkness. She was she was an angel. She didn't have children, and she just saved my life. She was a very strong Christian, too. She was a Baptist. And she was the kind of person that uh, really saw the unity in in human beings. So she did a lot of her work in the black community. She taught Sunday school and went to church there and lived in a black neighborhood. You know, she was very accepting because, of course, I was interested in finding out about the Baha'i faith. But about that time, she had to go to a special school for her job, and so I had to leave. And so I ended up in this home for unwed mothers. It so happened that this home in Nashville, Tennessee, now she was in Atlanta, she had to go to Nashville, so I landed up in this home in Nashville. And it was like the paint peeling off the walls, the brownstone brick, dim and dingy, and I was like, oh man, this is it for me. (laughs) I thought, I have really reached the end. And as it turned out, here were all these other girls that were in the same condition as me. I found a lot of solace. You know, there was a lot of understanding, and it wasn't awful at all. It wasn't the most physically beautiful environment, but, you know, I, I learned a lot. I mean, there weren't lots of black people in Walla Walla where I grew up, although there were some I looked in the phone book and it said Baha'i Faith. So I called up this number and I said that I was there at the Florence Crittenden Home for Unwed Mothers and I was wondering would they send someone to teach me about the Baha'i Faith? They said, why, of course, we'll send someone over there. So another angel appeared and her name was Irma Hayden. Irma Hayden is the wife of the was the wife of the poet Robert Hayden. Robert Hayden was a Poet Laureate of the U.S. He was also a Baha'i. And he was doing a visiting scholar at Vanderbilt. And so they had been there, and they were getting ready to go back. I think they were from Michigan. But anyway, here comes Irma Hayden. And my gosh, she was like an angel. She was sweet and kind and... I learned so much from her. They were getting ready to move so she brought me a number of books that I could read. You know, at the home they would have us they would bring a preacher in on on Sunday mornings and we would have to listen and so I went to them and I said, "You know, would you allow there to be a Bahai speaker?" And they said, "Yes." And I'm pretty sure they thought it was benign breath because <laughs> don't think This is really the Bible Belt, where this is. I mean, maybe not, but anyways, they said yes. So Irma Hayden came the next Sunday. The girls just loved her, and they were very excited about what they heard. And so she told us that there was like a worship service on Sunday morning at the Baha'i Center. (laughs) Interestingly enough, the Baha'i Center was about six blocks away. Around the corner, we were very very near Vanderbilt University. And so Sunday morning, like six or seven of us trooped over there to the Baha'i Center for their morning devotions. And, you know, as I look back on it now, I, I, I don't know that I was very aware of it now, but can you imagine what it must have been like in 1969 to have these six or seven girls, interracial girls, show up Obviously, we were all pregnant and no husbands. I mean, that that was rather frowned upon in those days. But you know what? They made us feel so welcome. Never once did I feel, you know, judged or, or I feel, you know, that people didn't want us there. People were so kind and so welcoming. So there we were, and it was something I'll never forget. I think when you're in a position where you're down, you know, you're down lower than, lower than the ground. You appreciate any kindness. Maybe, you know, that's one of the things that has always stuck with me, you know, in my life because I experienced that sense of community, a sense of belonging that I am sure I was looking for, you know. As long as I was there, right? we went to that worship service in the meantime, in in the, in August, my aunt had found there was an opening at the home in Atlanta, so I ended up moving over there. And while I was there, it was a big place. Like, there were 60 or 80 girls there. So they actually literally had a school, an accredited school. And so I was able to make up enough credits at that school quickly. <laughs> you know, I never cared a fig about school, and I never tried, and I never did homework but i i was capable of doing it i was able to make up these classes so that when i delivered and went home i was able to get back into school and not lose my whole year so i mean that was very fortunate all of these things are very very fortunate because your life can take different turns because of that i know that i knew exactly what i wanted to do when i went to university cuz Here I was in this home and you have to have an adoption caseworker come and talk with you. They're supposed to work with you, you know, because you're, you're doing this thing and they, you have to be interviewed a lot and blah, blah. No offense to these social workers, but they were young girls in their twenties. They just didn't look like they'd experienced any hardship in their life. I could sense that. It made what I was doing of that much harder, believe me. (laughs) I thought, you know, if I get the opportunity, I'm going to, I could do this. I'm going to go to school, and I'm going to help out somebody that's in my position someday, and I'll know what they're going through.
0: So when you went to college, by that time, had you identified yourself as a Baha'i?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely, (laughs) definitely. What is funny, just the last four days, my girlfriend, when I came back from this experience, I was pretty strongly Baha'i. Now, that doesn't mean my life wasn't full of lots of struggle, but my best friend, who I started smoking with in the ninth grade and started drinking with right then, started doing drugs in the tenth grade, I mean... You know, she says that I told her all the time about the Baha'i faith, and I was droning on about it every night, but I don't remember saying anything to her. But but eventually, her grandmother was the editor of the newspaper in Hermiston, and her grandmother said, oh, I really want to know about the Baha'i faith. At this time, my brother, who is a Baha'i, was having firesides. He and his wife, I mean, they were very, they just had a lot of love, People were so attracted to the faith. They were having 30 and 40 seekers at their firesides and people becoming Baha'is right and left.
0: I just want to explain to the listeners that a fireside is an informal gathering hosted by a Baha'i to let folks know what the Baha'i faith is.
1: Yeah. So my friend Marsha brought her grandmother to this fireside her grandmother thought it was great and fine, but she wasn't interested to go further. But Marsha kept coming. And finally, at one fireside, she came up to me and she said, Lori, I want to be a Baha'i. And I looked at her and I said, "Marsha, you don't know what you're talking about. And I said, you know, that's okay. And Marsha said she had to end up going to find somebody else to tell. <laughs> I was so shocked, you know. And in the meantime, my brother and I had gone to the church that we used to that we grew up in to talk to this e y c episcopal young churchman, and we ended up two a number of youth came to a fireside, and two of those youth declared then there was other youth and by the time the fast came in my senior year of high school, we had a Baha'i club there was like nine of us and I remember at lunchtime during the announcement they would say, well, the Baha'i Club is having prayers out in the lawn. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, Marsha and I went to Washington State together, to room together, okay? We had an active group of youth there. There was like maybe six or eight of us. From time to time, we would put the table up, the card table with the brochures and the pamphlets, and we were sure people were vitally interested in changing the world and, you know, and surprising things happen with that. Like, when guy came up and he, he saw the Seven Valleys and the Four Valleys, which is a an essay by Baha'u'llah or a tablet by Baha'u'llah that talks about the mystical journey of the soul, the development, spiritual development, in very mystical terms. And so this fellow said, well, you know, I'm going to read this and I'll be right back. And we were like... Uh, you want to take something else, you know? He said, no, no. He said, no, I'm interested in this. And we said, okay. By golly, the guy came back in two hours and said, I'd like to be a Baha'i. So we had those kinds of experiences. It was great. But also, you know, at the same time, I lived a double life. You know, I really could not stop drinking. So I would go and do Baha'i things and, and try try so hard. And then... I would end up drinking and so it was kind of like that a real struggle for me uh off and on but I guess I continued to struggle because I knew I knew what would happen to me if I didn't I just knew that you know there's just that destructive <laughs> sad or, de- or side of me that I had to continually be at battle with yeah i was very involved I, I my mom used to say i can always tell my parents weren't Baha'is. i can always tell when you've been to feast
0: <laughs> feast being the 19 day gathering of the baha'is yeah yeah so when were you able to put drinking behind you
1: i think it was about eight years after i became a baha'i it was actually shortly before i met my husband. I was on one of these, okay, I'm not doing this anymore. And I was the kind of drinker that I didn't drink every day or anything like that, but I was a bender drinker. If, if I might go two or three months without a drink, but if I start drinking, I'd be surely drinking through the whole weekend and maybe longer. And it was in September of 79, no, 77, that I said, okay, that's it. And then October 4th, I met my husband at an Indian education conference in Montana. We started talking with each other on the phone. He was he was an education director for his tribe. So we started talking back and forth on the phone and uh I really knew that if it was going to be a serious relationship that if I introduced alcohol at all that it would would never last. I don't know, but I just made up my mind, and so we got married in uh, March of 78, and that was before September of that 77, that was the last time I ever drank.
0: So you did it through willpower?
1: (laughs) Yeah, sort of, willpower and desperation and fear, and I mean, I used to go to AA meetings from time to time. I had some skills. I had some tools, so I knew what I was doing. And then after we got married, I got pregnant with our first son. So I think that was most of it. I knew enough not to drink. That, that. then, then I couldn't drink. And then I nursed him after that, and I nursed him for a year. So there was almost two years. And then pretty soon after that, our daughter came along. And by that time, you know, I had enough sobriety that I just never looked back. You know?
0: I guess you probably deal with alcoholic issues in your social work. Oh yeah. Yeah. Boy. What is your point of view in the fact that it seems that the native people seem to be so susceptible to that disease?
1: Mhm. Well, we still don't really know enough about the brain to really understand the origins of of many and most things that plague people. I mean, obviously, alcohol has to do with the brain as well as the body, and certainly it makes sense. You know, there's a field of thought that, that says because we historically did not have our bodies, you know, didn't assimilate alcohol historically because we just didn't use it, that, you know, would take so many, you know, how long does it take a society to assimilate something new. Who knows? That could be very true. I, mean, I can't say much about about other tribes. I can only say what I've learned, you know, about our own tribe. And we didn't use that kind of thing. We didn't use any substances uh, that would alter our consciousness in a sense how we metabolize alcohol has something to do with it. I'm sure that emotionally there is, what do they say, post-traumatic stress is often medicated by the use of alcohol and drugs. And so I come from a people who are suffering from post-traumatic stress. My father, as a boy, sat with men who had been in the battle of the Little Bighorn. I mean it wasn't that long ago for us that our people lived quite a different way of life. They were free. They had achieved a balance. And I'm sure that the use of alcohol and drugs for our people, you know, is also tied to, you know, a sorrow and the the effects of that. Trauma:
0: So, as a mother, how do you pass on the native tradition to your children?
1: <laughs> 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 well, we are both from the same tribe, you know, so you know we could be united in what we which what we shared with our children and I remember that uh, we moved to a new town, and we went over to the school that our kids were going to go to before school started, right before school started. And we went out on the playground and we found a tree, big tree, and we had brought tobacco. And so we said, okay, as a family, we're going to say prayers and put this tobacco down on the ground here. And my husband told the kids, okay, so if anything happens to you and you're unable to locate an adult or or you need us or whatever, you always know that here was is a place that you can come because our prayers are here and so i don't know how they felt about that but you know they did it and the next year my husband before school started wanted to go and do it again and my daughter said oh dad she said i she was like in second grade she said i don't i don't see why we have to do that and she said why don't we just go out in the backyard And he said, well, what do you mean? You know, we should go over to that tree and do it there. He said, she said, well, what does it matter? It's still the same earth. And you know, it was funny how he remembered that because he is not a Baha'i at that time. And one of the things that was difficult for him, a difficult teaching for him, was this Baha'i teaching that you should not be buried any further than one hour's journey from where you die. Because... A lot you'll find in amongst a lot of Indians, a custom is to go home to be buried. That was just a huge struggle to him. He just couldn't imagine not going home to be buried. But when our daughter said that, I think I think the reason why our daughter said that is she was kind of, not embarrassed, but, you know, maybe she didn't feel like going over there and we're all standing around on her playground. Now she knows people over there. <laughs> Standing around praying, and she was maybe self conscious, I don't know. But then, by her just, and it's true what she said, it's the same earth. And he remembered that. And so, later on, when he did eventually become a Baha'i, he said that was, you know, a really important thing that he learned from his daughter. So, I guess, in answer to your question, we took what we knew and we tried to apply it. On a daily basis, you could say, from our culture, what we knew.
0: Tell me about the social work that you do.
1: Well, after I got my degree, I ended up getting a master's degree in social work. I think I was very fortunate. I had went, there was an Indian social work education project at Portland State University, and there was a lot of support there because, you know, school is not what you could say historically has not been a welcoming place for diversity much. This was, of course, in the 70s, and I felt very fortunate to have this support. So when I finished school, I knew that with a master's degree most uh, on most reservations, or I figured in most Indian communities where I would be working, I needed to have direct service experience, which you know, had done. I'd worked in a methadone clinic. I'd worked in an alcohol and drug treatment center, but also I needed to have some ability to run a program. And so I took some classes, a lot of classes in community development and administration. But I ended up in education instead for two years. I worked at United Indians of All Tribes Foundation uh, in technical assistance, helping. Tribes and organizations and parent committees develop grants and run programs for Indian education, and that was really actually that's how I met my husband. Then I stepped off for some years to raise our children. You know that was something really great. I really appreciated my husband supported. That was the thing that we agreed upon that we didn't want a babysitter to raise our children. In the meantime. He went back had gone back to school to become a teacher, and he got a job at Chimawa Indian School as a social studies teacher while I was there the last year I ran a girls' group, and it was really fun. I really enjoyed it i mean i <laughs> I could relate to what these girls were going through. uh we left, and Jacob went to get his master's. And then actually he came back to Chamawa Indian School as the academic head of the school. And so at that time, our kids were old enough that I could start working part-time. So I started working as a counselor at Chamawa. And we had a very strong um, alcohol and drug program at the school. There was 400 Indian kids from the 10 Western tribes that went there. And, you know, I really cherish the years we were there. We spent four years there. I think the experience of my parents being a product of residential boarding school and then, you know, working there and Jacob uh, working on the academic side and I worked on the residential side, it was wonderful. It was a wonderful opportunity.
0: Deloria, these schools had the opposite agenda of the school that your parents went to then.
1: Yeah, over, I guess, for 50 years makes a difference. <laughs> I mean, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, it's still a Bureau of Indian Affairs school. This Chihuahua Indian School came about in the in the late 1800s. It had been there that long. Of course, it was a new school, but yeah. Those kinds of things that happened at that school then, back in the day, were not happening anymore. So we were there, and we were very happy. I loved the students, and I loved my coworkers, and and I was really proud of the program that Chamawa was developing. I think it was quite innovative amongst other Indian schools. But then I was invited to organize the programs for a thing called the Continental Indigenous Council, which was a gathering of Aboriginal Baha'is from Alaska, Canada, and the U.S. And this was happening at Maxwell International Baha'i School, which was on Vancouver Island. I was invited by the council to come up there and meet with them, and then there was going to be this big conference happening in July of 91. So I went there several times, and when I came back I jokingly said to Jacob, oh, you know, wouldn't it be great, you know, we could go there, you could be the principal, and I could be the counselor, and he was saying, oh, yeah, you know, by this time he'd become a Baha'i. That summer, that summer of 91, in July, we went to this conference, and, of course, I was insanely busy. I basically saw Jacob just like, hello. (laughs) But Jacob mentioned as we passed that he had been invited to apply for a job there. And I said, "Oh, great, you know he did they did interview him, and on the way home on the ferry he, I remember us talking about it, and he was like, Oh my gosh, oh, that'd be crazy, and sure enough, they did offer him the job, and I was like, Hun, we just can't get up and move in a month to another country. Tell them you know, we'll be there next year, you know give us we give us until next year." And so he said, okay, well, you tell him because he had to go to D.C. the next day. And he said, you call him and tell him we can't make it. And I said, okay. Well, in the meantime, I talked to my old boss at Chamawa who had retired. She had gotten cancer. And really, she taught me everything I knew about working in schools with kids. But she said, she was a real strong Catholic. She said, you mean you would miss this opportunity to go to a school that's run on the principles of your faith, and work with kids, and you can, with with all the spiritual tools you have, openly you would miss that opportunity. I said, yeah, but how could we just leave Chamawa, You know, just leave them high and dry. And Jake's the principal, and you know how, how? She said, don't worry, they'll put somebody acting in there, and they won't even think about it. And sure enough, they did. They had a person, an acting principal, in there for two years, as a matter of fact. But anyways, so I called them and I said, Jake would love the job. And they were actually, they hadn't, they had just started the school three years before that. And they didn't have a counselor. And they said, would you be interested in applying for that? And I said, yeah. So we moved in one month to Canada, to Vancouver Island. And I applied for this job and I got it. So, I was the school counsellor at Maxwell uh, for eighteen years, actually, until the school closed in two thousand and eight
0: and what are you doing now, Deloria?
1: Well, for about eighteen let's see eighteen months or sixteen months i I guess until the present, I'm the interim director of the Office of Aboriginal Affairs for the Baha'i community of Canada. And that is uh, an office that we are trying to develop to be of assistance in sort of an external affairs, to offer the tools of faith to the aboriginal community in Canada. Also, I am back to doing school counseling again. I decided after so many years that i it's a big responsibility when children are away from home I really feel like, wow! If something happened to him, I'd feel so responsible. It's a big responsibility, and I'd done it, you know, at Shemawa for five years, and then at Maxwell for eighteen years. And I thought, man, after a year and a half away from it, I really have missed it a lot. So I'm, I'm counseling a couple of days a week at an international school near Victoria, and I really love it.
0: What is the name of the Baha'i institution that you're working at?
1: It's the Office of Aboriginal Affairs for the Baha'i Community of Canada. We're trying to make contacts and make relationships in the Native community in Canada. And so we're hoping that through these relationships and through these bonds that are being made, that we can find ways and means using the tools of the faith, like even using our, our election Methods. I think Aboriginal people may have found that the methods used by the Europeans in their government, development of government, their electioneering, their nominating, their party system, the disunifying effect of those may not be something that they really want to stick with. So, you know, we should be able to have relationships of trust and of service so that we can offer some of these
0: tools. Can you provide more detail on what is the Baha'i election process that's different from the typical election process?
1: Well, I think actually it's completely revolutionary. Even as Baha'is, we don't understand it thoroughly, and, and maybe we won't be able to understand it thoroughly until it grows The government that Bahá'u'lláh outlined his blueprint is really meant, as I understand it, for a larger audience than what we have now as Bahá'ís. But I think the the basis upon which his government is built is this concept of service, being a servant, and it's a spiritual concept. Jesus said, "You know the." the first shall become last and the last shall become first and you know about the kingdom belonging to the children and this idea that real power and real dedication lies really in not being so called quote a leader or having authority or or power as we know it but it really lies in our ability to transform ourselves through our spiritual practices and service Abdu'l-Baha was the son of Bahá'u'lláh. The Tablet of Visitation, which is a prayer said especially for him, is all about this elevating this quality of service and being a servant. And so, in order to really understand this governance that Bahá'u'lláh brought, I think you know you have to start there. You have to start with a very different idea of authority and power. Our greatest power lies in our humility and meekness. And our ability and our joy, and the transformative joy one gets out of service, okay, so if that is true, then out of a pool of people in your community, which you are actively involved with you're you know working with in projects you're serving with, you're seeing on a regular basis you know these various community activities, you began to know people, and you began to see those people. Who have good qualities of organization, of loyalty, of devotion, of selflessness, and so forth. And so, actually, Abdul Baha delineates these qualities that need to be present in those who are elected to serve on the governing body for a local community. And again, there are certainly qualities of a true servant. And then there's this tool called consultation. Consultation is the ability to find the truth by contributing ideas in such a way that although there may be a clash of different ideas, although there may be differences of ideas, the paramount interest of the people consulting is finding the truth. And it really has nothing to do with who's right and who's wrong. You know, I may think something is very, very right, and, and it's possible we may make a decision because we're not infallible. That's absolutely wrong. But we understand that along with trying to find the truth, the importance and the necessity of having balance, harmony, and unity as part of this consultative process. So people should look into this. They should be very curious about a system of governance that utilizes these qualities. And that so nine people then, without any electioneering, without any nominating, nine people are elected in a community to serve on an institution called the Local Spiritual Assembly. That's the governing body. You never say to somebody, well, who did you vote for? I'm going to vote for so-and-so, or I wish I had voted for so-and-so. Once during the year, a unit convention is held in which... All the Baha'is in in a unit area come together to elect delegates to a national convention. And again, the same way, without electioneering, without discussion, in a very prayerful atmosphere, those delegates are elected, and then those delegates go to a national convention. In the same process, in the same spiritual, rarefied, we hope, atmosphere, a national spiritual assembly is elected. And then once every five years, all the National Spiritual Assemblies in the world go to Haifa to elect the Universal House of Justice. Again, using these same principles and the same basis, you know, people should look into this. They should be curious, especially given the state of governance around the world. People should be saying, like, well, what are these people doing, and how are they doing it? Because I find it pretty amazing. And at this point, miraculously, don't ask me how, because we don't, I mean, it is a very miraculous process. Last year, I was elected to the National Spiritual Assembly of Canada.
0: Deloria, thank you so much for joining us on A Baha'i Perspective.
1: Well, thank you for asking me.
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview with Deloria Bighorn a Yankton Sioux and Chickasaw Indian who is the Interim Director of the Office of Aboriginal Affairs for the Baha'i Community of Canada. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on a Baha'i perspective. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.